Well, our text that we're going to look at is from Philippians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 27 through 30. You know, whenever you're in a foreign country, you have to carry some proof of citizenship with you, such as a passport. That was, those were things that I really didn't understand until back in about 1992, whenever I went on my first mission trip to a foreign country. And at that time, it was Wales in the United Kingdom. Um, we were also told that before we left to go over there, not only did we need a passport, but we needed to carry just a copy of our passport just in case that was something that was needed. I will have to say this, in the UK, I never did need that, except whenever I arrived at an airport. And uh, later on, uh, I got to go to Ukraine with Doyle Summerall. Uh, the only time I needed it there was whenever we were uh, at the airport. But I, didn't, uh, I never did need it over there, but I always kept a copy of it with me in my car, in my pocket. One t we, and whenever we went on that trip in 1992 to the United Kingdom, uh, we met, we made some friends with a family, and since that time, that family has come to see us quite often, and we've been able to go see them from time to time. And of course, what we always do whenever we get together, we try to go see something in the other one's native land that might be of interest to them. And there in Wales was a thing that was called a living museum. It was very interesting. And what they had done was that they had taken old structures that had dated back, oh goodness, to like the 1400s. They put them back together, and some of them were houses, some of them were work areas. And there was one thing that was an old grist mill. Everything in it was made out of oak, all the gears and cogs and everything. And so we went in there and we saw a man uh, operate it for us and explain how things were done. We enjoyed it, we said thank you, and then we walked out. And we had probably gotten, I don't know, 30, 40 yards away from there whenever I heard somebody yelling. It was just, hey, hey, hey. And of course, turned around to see what was going on. It was the man that was running the grist mill, and he was running right toward us, waving his arm. He comes up to me, and he says, are you from Texas? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Look at my belt buckle. A man from San Antonio gave it to me. And I said, well, that's nice. He said, maybe you know him. I said, well, no, I doubt that I do. I said, there's over 500,000 people in San Antonio, and I don't know, but about a half dozen of them. I thought that was interesting that he would just come running up. But whenever I was in the UK, it was not the paper passport that I needed. All I needed... <laughs> was what I had on, just in boots and a hat by Mike's Hatters out of Longview. That was, as far as they were concerned, if they saw that, they knew that I had to be from Texas. Well, that might be true in the UK, it might be true in some other parts of the world in different areas, but whoever you are, whether you've ever been overseas on a mission trip or not, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a citizen of another kingdom. And wherever we go in this world, we are living here as sojourners. And we must always bear with us proof of our true citizenship. Let's read from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 and 30. The Apostle Paul writes this to the people in Philippi. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his name, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, what is this teaching us? Well, listen to what he's having to say here. And you say, where do we get this idea of citizenship here? Well, if you're using an English Standard Version, if you will look down at your uh, footnotes at the bottom of the page, uh, you'll notice that there's what we would call a marginal reading or a marginal translation or an alternate translation where it says, only behave as citizens worthy. Now, let's kind of back up here on this. If you'll notice verse 27 in the English Standard Version, once again, starts off with the word only. Let me read you a paraphrase of this so that maybe it will make a, a little bit more better sense in tying in everything that the Apostle Paul has been saying to this point. In chapter 1, he tells them he really does not know for sure what the future will hold for him. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, I might, may die as a prisoner uh, of the state of Rome. I may be put to death. Or I may be released and I may be able to come and see you again. And so in verse 27, what he goes on to say was something like this. He says, but whatever happens to me, whether I live or die, just make sure that as citizens of Christ's kingdom, you conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's going to talk about this idea of citizenship even more clearly in chapter 3. So what he's talking about here is, first of all, what we are supposed to do as believers in Jesus Christ is that we should always reflect the glory of the gospel in our lifestyles. In other words, you conduct your life in a way that is worthy of your citizenship. The way you conduct your life is going to be an indicator of what your true citizenship is. And, and this was something that probably struck a chord with the people in Philippi. Philippi was not just some little wide spot in the road. It was a very important city in the Roman Empire. There were certain cities in the Roman Empire that, were, that had the standing of being a Roman colony. That meant that they had really like all the rights and privileges of a person who would be a citizen of Rome itself. The people in Philippi were very proud of that standing. They were very proud of that honor to be able to be called a, a Roman colony. Its citizens were always mindful of that. Its citizens quite often would dress like the Romans would dress and talk like the Romans would talk. They wanted to be able to reflect their citizenship as, as full citizens in the Roman Empire. That They were ever mindful of that. And we too must be ever mindful of the fact that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. As we said, Paul makes this very clear in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 where he says, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's telling us is that our, life sh our lifestyle should be a testimony to the righteousness of the gospel and the power of the gospel. If you look in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 24, where he says in there, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin, 
live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And what, he, and this, what this is saying is this. If, if we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, we're going to die to sin and we're going to live to him. Meaning, we will determine, in order to show our true citizenship, that we will not live and act like the rest of the world. And we will show that the gospel has made a change in our lives. Now, I'm sure, you know, I don't know of anyone in the United States hardly that ever listened to music back in the 60s and 70s that didn't hear the hymn Amazing Grace. Oddly enough, it was one of those Christian songs that hit the top of the charts back in the 60s. But you know the story, I'm sure, about the one who wrote it. The man who wrote it was a man named John Newton. He was born in 1725, and I think he died in about 1807. Before he became a Christian, he became a Christian as a young man, but before he became a Christian, he was a slave trader. He was, for all intents and purposes, you know, he might not have been an atheist, but he was a practical atheist. He had no interest in the things of God. But he was saved as a young man, and his life was completely changed. And he went from being a slave trader to being a preacher of the gospel. And he was a, an Anglican minister in England for many, many years. You can go outside and uh, uh, the, the, into the graveyard where he served at one church. And you can see his marker on his grave even today. And it simply says this, John Newton, clerk. In other words, John Newton, clergyman. He said, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. What he's saying is this, is that the truth of the gospel was seen in his life. The way that he conducted his life, the changes that the gospel had made in his life, showed what his true citizenship was. Understand this, it is our walk, our conversation, our lifestyle in the gospel, if that is what people are going to listen to and that is what people are, how people are going to shape their idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember this, there is no spoken testimony, no spoken testimony that is heard as well as the testimony of our conduct. In order to, to illustrate that, let me ask you, what do you remember most about Jim Baker? Hmm? You remember him, him and Tammy Faye. What do you remember most? You probably do not remember a single sermon that he ever preached. You do remember the questionable scheme of, of this uh, Christian amusement park. You remember his fling with Jessica Hahn. What do you remember most about Jimmy Swaggart? Do you remember most about his... Uh, uh, his television shows, the songs that he would sing, the sermons that he would preach? Or do you remember more about two times that he was arrested for having flings with prostitutes? You see, it's kind of hard to listen to a person tell about the glories of the gospel when he doesn't live like he, he is a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. So, what we have to do is improving our citizenship or showing our citizenship is we need to let the, the glory of the gospel be reflected in our lives. Second thing is this, we must contend for the faith of the gospel. 
And this is something that the Apostle Paul tells them. He said, uh, he said, I want to hear you standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, contend for the faith of the gospel. We are called upon here in this passage, just like the Philippians were, to uphold the body of beliefs which are based on God's revelation in his word and in his son. We must do more than just come to church to have fun. But we must, what we must be doing is contending for the truth of the gospel. Well, what, you may say, well, what is that body of beliefs? Well, this is kind of what I would suggest. It has to be something that is basic but very clear, but is also very true to the important truths of the scripture. You know, and this is a thing that the church has done for a long, long time. You know, Baptists for a long, long time have always said we have no creed but the Bible, which is good, but it, a lot of it has to do with how you're going to understand the Bible. This is what I say, is, you know, we have certain creeds. There was the Apostles' Creed, which was probably the oldest statement of faith that we have on hand. And it goes way, 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 way back. It's simple, it's basic, it's to the point but it does uphold the truth of the revelation of God's word. There was the old Baptist faith in message. Uh, there was another thing called the abstract of principles that was put together by the, the president of our first Southern Baptist seminary up in Louisville. Uh, and so all of these things are just basic statements of what the scriptures have to teach about God and being a triune God, about Jesus Christ being his eternal son, uh, about the Holy Spirit being also a, a full-fledged person of the Trinity. Uh, that, the, that our salvation is based solely upon the grace of God that it was displayed on the cross and displayed at the empty tomb. Those are the things that we must contend for. And the reason we do it is that it is something that is needed. It has always been needed in the history of the church. And I think especially so today here in our own country. Understand this, is that there are theologians out there who tell us that a lot of what the gospel message states, or what the gospel states is just simply not true. It's more of a fiction, maybe kind of a religious parable or something like that. It's interesting how the, the, if you take the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the gospel, you really don't have any good news. But there are theologians that would say, well, it really didn't happen that way. And we could talk about this for a long, long time as to what some of them are saying. But I'll tell you about the most kooky one that I've ever read. And it was uh, written by an Australian theologian named Thiessen, uh, Barbara Thiessen. And if I'm not mistaken, what she said is that Jesus really didn't die on the cross. Since it was so late in the evening, they had to go on and take Jesus and uh, the other two malefactors down. And they just went on and threw him in a, in a cave and rolled a stone over the door. And, uh, but they really weren't all dead. One of those that was crucified with Jesus, according to this weird idea, is that he was Judas Iscariot himself, who also was kind of a patent medicine man. He had some kind of herbs on him where he was carrying them. But I have no idea because when you were crucified, you were crucified naked. Somehow or another, he had some kind of herbs with him. He nursed Jesus back to health. They all got out of the tomb and went off. I think Jesus went on to marry Mary, Mary, Mag, Mary Magdalene. And he also spent the rest of his life cruising the Mediterranean with his good friend Paul the Apostle. 
Now, if that isn't about the hokiest thing that you've ever heard of, but there are people that are propagating this type of stuff who, sit, who are recognized by some as theologians. There are people that are intellectuals and pseudo-intellectuals that laugh at the belief in the Bible. The people in our own society today, many of them scoff at those who believe in the traditional orthodox message of the gospel. They refer to us as those who are narrow-minded, who are religious radicals and fundamentalists. Back uh, this last year in 2020, there was a survey that was conducted by Ligonier Ministries in the Lifeway Research uh, Group, and it was... Uh, questioning people and polling people about their religious beliefs here in America. Get this, 62% of all Americans, or 62% of, of the Americans surveyed state that they believe that Jesus was a great teacher. Uh, no, 62% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 26% that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God. 33% believe that God accepts the worship of all religions no matter what they are. There are even those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ who have begun to, to reject long-held, time-tested uh, teachings of the faith that were once and for all delivered to the saints. Some of you... Uh, may read commentaries by one particular theologian that were written, I don't know, many years back, and he's passed away by now. But whenever it comes to uh, reading things in the gospel about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, he's going to say, well, it really doesn't make that much difference if Jesus was born of a virgin. The thing is that God became a man. In other words, he's just really writing off the whole idea of the virgin birth. And there's other people that would agree with him who would consider themselves Christians. So there is an issue that we need to deal with, and we must always be ready to contend for the faith. But how are we going to do it? First of all, you have to know what the Bible says. I mean, you just cannot emphasize this enough. We have to know what it says. Pour over the Gospels. And if, that's, and, and if you've never read the Bible all the way through, the first thing that I would tell you to do is read the Gospels. Read them and reread them. Find out what Jesus really did say. Find out what the Scriptures tell us about who Jesus really is. Another thing is this, is you need to know what other people are saying. Not only those who doubt Christ and who cast aspersions upon the gospel, but read the things that other people have written in, uh, in response to them. One of the old books around that was really came out in the mid-20th century was written by a man named C.S. Lewis. Many of you may have already read it. It's called Mere Christianity. If you've never read it, buy a copy. Sell your cloak and buy one, so to speak. And, and read that, and it will teach you so much why it is, it is not idiocy to believe what the Bible has to say. Another one that is really a more modern one is it's a book that was written, oh, I don't know, a little over 20 years ago, and it was called Jesus Under Fire. And if I'm not mistaken, it is still in print. It's just a small paperback book. It was a, a series of articles written by several different theologians that we would call orthodox theologians. Uh, I believe mm, it was edited by Michael Wilkins and a guy named J.P. Moreland. It's a really, really good book. There may be one chapter that is a little technical. Read what these guys are saying. 
And I think you'll find out that you can, that it will teach you, this is kind of what the other side is saying, and it also teaches you how to respond to that type of thing. Here's another thing, is that whenever we are going to enter the struggle, we have to contend together in unity. And that is something that he says here in this passage in, in verse 27, that we need to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, this is saying that as a body of believers, say as one church, we have to contend together. We can never communicate a message of God's amazing grace if we don't show grace. We need to contend together not just as one body of believers, but we must contend together as a body, a single body of believers of the church worldwide. In other words, we are not going to be contending against our brothers and sisters that are the churches around here that preach the gospel. We're going to praise God whenever things go well for them. But we're also not going to be competing with other people in our, in our own body of believers. We have to work together and we have to work with grace or we're just, we might as well punt on first down. We must enter the struggle by contending in a manner that is worthy of Christ's character. You're never going to be able to convince a lost person. You're never going to be able to have a fruitful discussion with someone who doubts the gospel if you are coming upon them in a harsh manner or you're losing your temper with them. Understand, Jesus never did things that way. And if you want to know how to contend for the gospel, read the gospels and see what he did. Another thing we see here is that we must always be ready to stand firm in the face of persecution. Do not fear the enemies of the gospel. Notice what he says in here in verse 28. He says that we, are not, we should not be frightened in anything by our opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what he's saying is, is don't fear the enemies of, of the gospel. Let me see if I can find this passage. In, yeah, I've got it marked here. Notice what Jesus says about fear and the enemies of the gospel. In verse, Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, those who might be persecutors of the church, we don't need to be afraid of them. You know, the worst that they can do to us is to kill us. But they, after they kill the body, that's all that they can do. The one that we need to fear is God. And he's the one whom should be our fear. So don't fear the gospels because, don't fear the enemies of the gospel because they can't take away their lives. Because for us to, to, to live is Christ and to what? To die is gain. Another thing is, is that our steadfast endurance and in, in standing firm in the face of persecution, our steadfast endurance is a sign, number one, to us that God has saved us and that we know that God has saved us so we are not afraid. Another thing is this, is that our steadfast endurance is a clear sign that the enemies of the gospel understand that and they see that and our, our refusal to be intimidated by them is a sign to the enemies of their own destruction. That's what it says right here. And let me read this again. In verse 28, it said, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that of God. 
What he's telling us is this. The in, it's every time that the enemy sees that we will not be cowed by them, it shows them, that reminds them, that as enemies of the gospel, they have nothing to look forward to but destruction. They see that there is a power behind our endurance that they must someday reckon with. That is what Paul is saying. And you say, well, I just don't see how that has ever happened. Well, let me give you a story about how it did happen. This is back in September of 1999. It was at a Wednesday night youth rally at Westwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. A man named Larry Ashbrook, who was a real wacko, came in there with a 9mm pistol and some pipe bombs. He ended up killing seven people that night during this youth rally. It, whenever he, he shot some people out in the foyer, killed them, and then he comes into the sanctuary where they had teenagers from all over the area that were gathered together for this youth rally. You know, they had music going on up here, and of course, like people do today, they had the house lights turned off and just lights up here on the stage. Well, Larry comes in there and starts shooting, and he killed people. He wounded some others, and uh, finally, whenever he, and people did not believe that this was something that was real. They thought it was some kind of a skit that was being acted out, and there was a couple of the teenage boys that started uh, heckling him, telling him that he couldn't shoot and he couldn't do anything right. And they were just teasing with him because they thought it was a skit. Well, that's when Larry pulled out one of his pipe bombs and threw it. Well, fortunately, he could not throw as well as he could shoot. But when that pipe bomb went off, it, everything, they, people realized that this is the real deal. They turned on all the house lights. He, they said, began pacing back and forth at the back of the sanctuary, spewing out all types of obscenities and saying, you know, do you believe this baloney, you know, are you masons? Just, he was crazy. And there was a young man who was only about 18 years old, and he was from a Baptist church in Joshua, Texas. He was the youth leader for that group. One Fort Worth detective said, that young man became my hero. He said that young man got up out of his seat and he started walking toward this killer. And he spread his arms out like this and he said, you want to kill somebody? Kill me. I am not afraid to die. Kill me. And whenever he did that, Larry Ashbrook began walking backwards and he began backing away and recalling from this young man and finally ended up backing up to a wall and shot himself in the head. He wouldn't attack anybody else after that. In other words, our devotion to the gospel, our devotion that would lead us even to death, is something that is a powerful statement. As we said not too long ago, as a matter of fact, it was last Sunday, is that sometimes the most powerful sermon that we can ever preach, the most powerful witness that we can ever render is one whenever we, the one that we render whenever we are spending our last day on this earth. Now notice another thing though about this suffering for Christ. This may sound odd to you, but notice it says in verse 29 that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. In other words, we can kind of paraphrase this. In other words, God has graciously given us this privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ, just as much as he has given us this privilege of believing in Jesus Christ. 
This is not the... In other words, he is saying that the opportunity to suffer for the gospel is just as much, is, is a gift of God, just like your ability even to believe in the gospel. And this is not the only place where it says something about the blessings of persecution. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kind of concludes the Beatitudes with this statement. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice, in, and there's another passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14. In verse 14, he said, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Just because people will be persecuted for the gospel, that we might be derided for the gospel or scoffed at for the gospel, it puts us in some pretty good company. Remember, those who suffer for the gospel's sake are not alone in the world. We never have been. There are places in the world where people are suffering for the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I, I read this in more than one source, but they said in the 20th century, more people died because of their faith in Jesus Christ than in any other century prior to that. And so it's always going on. It has always gone, and it shall be. But when we are willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ... It may cause us that we would lose some friends. It may cause us that we would lose a promotion at work. It might cause us to lose our jobs. But when we are willing to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it shows where our citizenship really is. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. And those who await him are not a small group. It's a group found around the world. What group are you in? Do you have proof of your citizenship today? Let's pray together. Now, our Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us to sustain us. We pray that you would give us the strength to always be able to show where our citizenship really is, that we will not be intimidated by those who would want to deride us, who, those who would want to persecute us, but that we would always keep our eyes fixed upon you. Lord, always give us grace, always give us strength, always cause us to band together arm in arm for, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, it is so wonderful to be able to know that the message of Jesus Christ is the message of truth and that Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection set us free. We pray this in his name. Amen.